We have a survey for listeners of the Energy Gang and the Interchange. I wanted to mention it before we start. It is right there in the show notes. It'll take you just a few minutes. It's anonymous, unless, of course, you want some pieces of swag that we are putting together, maybe a mug, a pair of socks, uh, and you'll have to give your email address for those. But otherwise, we just want to know where you are in the industry. Jigger, what profession do you think is most common among our listeners? Analyst. (laughs) Now, it's a split between rock splitters and snake milkers. Nice. (laughs) Uh, No, we have a ton of people in wind, solar, storage, utilities, and oil and gas. That's to be expected. But we also have surprise jobs. Maybe they're not surprises, but they're outside of the traditional energy realm. People in information technology, a lot of folks in venture capital, a lot of folks in politics, and uh, specifically in fuel cells and building energy efficiency. So... We want to hear about where you stand in the industry, or even if you're outside the industry. It'll help us make more relevant content, and to be totally transparent, it helps us find the right advertisers for this show as well. So pick up your phone or whatever device you're listening to and fill out the survey. Thank you so much. A thanks also goes to our sponsor, SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading solar inverter supplier by volume in the world. It's now a leading supplier across the Americas, too. And they're doing all sorts of really cool projects, including uh, a massive multi-megawatt project in the Navajo Nation and one with Apple as well. They're also working with bifacial panels and designing specific projects around this cool up-and-coming technology. Find out more about SunGrow at sungrowpower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at Green Tech Media. I'm in Boston. This week, who's retrying to kill the electric car? Advocacy groups backed by oil companies are increasingly lobbying against utilities that are trying to support electric vehicles. Are we seeing a coming political clash between the oil industry and utility industry? We're joined by a seasoned energy reporter who's been tracking these emerging challenges. Then, we are devoting our second half of the show to the legal challenges against fossil fuel companies. Exxon is on trial in New York. It's not for responsibility for climate change, per se. It's way more legally subtle than that. But it's got everyone paying attention to this very complicated yet riveting issue. As the science and legal arguments evolve, will big fossil fuel companies be held accountable for a warming planet? In Washington, D.C., a city gripped by its own legal drama at the moment is Catherine Hamilton. She is our co-host, of course, and chair of 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. Hi. But way more interesting than the legal drama is that the first time in 86 years, the Nationals will be playing in a World Series here in town, and I will be there. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how did you get tickets? How did you score those? Are you you uh, you making the rounds around Washington, you know, hitting people up? <laughs> No, what we're doing is we're putting off the rehab of a bathroom that I have been fantasizing about for 12 years, and I figure I can wait another 12. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure the Nats will appreciate the great karma. (laughs) That's Jiggershaw. He's in Bethesda, Maryland. He's the president of Generate Capital. What is uh, riveting there in Bethesda? Well, you know, we've got a Halloween celebration this Saturday for the four-year-old. Sounds terrifying, Jigger. (laughs) He's going to be in a dinosaur costume, so I might find something that matches. Well, we've got a Halloween recording next week, so maybe we'll all choose our scary climate or 
energy-related costume ideas like we did many years ago. Yeah, Jigger, you could be a well, lump of coal. <laughs> well, that would mean I'd have to go to Neil Chatterjee's confab in Kentucky. <laughs> we are joined by a journalist who will be a familiar name to our audience. It is Gavin Bade. He's a reporter at Politico covering energy and utilities. Gavin is the former senior editor at Utility Dive, and he covers uh, all sorts of different things related to uh, energy regulation, utility business models, the rise of clean energy. He is also there in Washington, D.C. Gavin, welcome to the show. Hey, Energy Gang. Longtime listener, first time guest. I'm super happy to be here. Love y'all. Um, and I'm fresh off of that uh, Neil Chatterjee confab in Kentucky, so we can talk about that as well. Hey, Gavin, so are you trying to make a big splash with your new gig? <laughs> well, thanks, Catherine. Always always trying to make a splash. I think what you're referring to is uh, Neil Chatterjee, Chairman Neil Chatterjee's tweet a couple weeks ago, um, attacking a little bit of our reporting. He said uh, he thought I was just trying to make a splash in my new job when we reported that he was uh, considering stepping down before his term was up. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of reporters in Washington have, have dealt with something like this, where you... You put something out that someone in power doesn't like, and, and these days during the Trump administration, people feel uh, very comfortable attacking journalists in very personal terms. So uh, for people who didn't see it, um, we reported, as I said, that Chatterjee was thinking about stepping down before his term was up. Um, and after we gave him good opportunity to respond, we had a podcast episode with him Um he took it upon himself to tweet out a statement saying that, you know, back in the day when my colleague Darius Dixon was on the uh, on the FERC beat, we never would have reported this. Um, and he thought that I was, quote, trying to make a splash in my new job. So, you know, I think it's understandable why he would want to push back on that reporting. No FERC chairman wants to be considered a lame duck. Um, and as soon as people think you're going to step down, they start thinking about who your successor is going to be. Um, but I think there is a difference today um, in how Political figures in Washington seem to feel very comfortable making uh, making these, you could say, reporting pushbacks a little bit more personal. You know, I think in the past, maybe you wouldn't have mentioned the reporter by name, wouldn't have mentioned their uh, predecessor in a role, but that's pretty par for the course uh, these days in Washington. I think... Most of my reporting friends have a story something like this. I know a lot of my colleagues at Politico have uh, put up with... Behavior like this, especially coming out of the Environmental Protection Agency uh, when Scott Pruitt was still the head there. Um, and I think it's something we'll see continue in Washington. The acrimony just seems to be rising. You've been digging into this emerging clash between oil and utilities. It's playing out, again, in this high stakes world of regulatory filing, mostly on the state level. Um, so, so as you point out in this recent piece, a bunch of groups backed by oil interests or the oil lobby itself have been pushing back and trying to change or squelch utility investments in electric vehicle infrastructure. Now, before we get to that, there's an important prelude to this story that we should mention first. As you mentioned in your your recent story, um, it's, it's related to this documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car? Um, and in that documentary, they uh, highlight a similar pushback in California in the 90s. What happened there? Yeah, so back in the 90s, um, the California Air Resources Board, the air regulators there, um, and just the California government in general, they had some very ambitious um, clean vehicle goals that were, uh, that were going to force automakers in California to sell a greater proportion um, of their vehicles in the state. Over the next, over a series of years, they would have to sell more and more zero emission vehicles. Um, 
back, this was back in the late 90s and early 2000s, and the automakers were very much against this. The automakers and the oil industry in California really, really pushed back and said, this is, there's no consumer demand for EVs. They said that this is going to be too costly for consumers. Um, and they eventually got um, CARB, the Air Resources Board in California, to really scale back um, what were some very, at the time, very ambitious e, um, electric vehicle and zero emission vehicle um targets there. So we're still kind of living with the consequences of that because the California standards today are just starting to catch up to where they were, where they were going to be set back in the early 2000s. Um, but this was a really concerted campaign in the state from automakers and from the oil industry that was um, memorialized in this very uh, semi-well-known documentary called Who Killed the Electric Car? Um, what we see today, I think, is kind of just a is just the second act of that play, if you will. Um, it's just—it's not just in California, but across um, ten states or more across the nation, we see—you know—a lot of the same oil industry groups that were fighting in California a decade ago are now squaring up against utilities and their plans to deploy electric vehicle charging stations. So I think that now that electric vehicles are becoming a bit more competitive with internal combustion engine vehicles, the the oil sector sees this as a huge threat to their business now, and they're starting to fight back just like they did in California. I mean, I think there's another narrative to this story, though, Gavin. I mean, I, as someone who worked pretty hard on the CARB um, mandate back in the 90s when I was with the Clean Cities program at Department of Energy, um, you know, like the the EV1 was launched about 23 years ago to today. Um so that was like the first electric car that was sort of produced from the ground up from General Motors to be sold really to meet this mandate in California. And our good friend Chelsea Sexton was a part of that. And she's become quite famous from the Who Killed Electric Car movie to others. And in general, I would say that the reason the automakers have gotten around is because, as you said, you know, consumers are interested and they but they clearly weren't interested in the 90s, right? So CARB was sort of forcing a technology onto people that they didn't really want. And so the fight was really around like, you know, what is the proper role of regulators and whether that law was really ahead of its time. I think we can argue that Tesla and a lot of the work that they've done has really opened the aperture here such that consumers genuinely are demanding high quality electric cars. And that's what's forced VW and a lot of other folks to say, well, crap, I mean, if we're going to provide cars that people want to buy, we're going to have to get good electric vehicles. Um, so I, I, my sense is, is, that, is that the narrative is a little bit different. And I think that, that from the oil company's perspective, I certainly understand um, where they're coming from. But the electric utilities weren't, did, ne did no favors for themselves. Right. They were nowhere to be found. Even today, I would say the electric utilities are like 10 years behind where they should have been around what their thought process really is around how to support electric vehicles. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Jigger. And it's been really interesting. I haven't been in the energy industry that long, but even over just the last few years, I've seen a sea change in how the electric utilities um, approach this issue of 
electric vehicles uh, just from a lobbying and public policy standpoint. You know, five years ago when I first started reporting, I don't think you could find outside of California, I I can't think of many utility proposals to build electric vehicle charging stations. I can't think of a lot of lobbying at the state level to increase electric vehicle uh, incentives or targets or things like that. Now, um, I think the latest numbers I saw were at 25 states, there are utilities that have uh, that have put forward plans to install electric vehicle charging or or to support that infrastructure in some way. Um, and now we see them put really putting their shoulder into lobbying up on Capitol Hill here in Washington for vehicle tax credits. And it's kind of, you know, it's it is interesting because you figure, why did they not see this before? This is their only real opportunity for load growth, for electricity demand growth in the 21st century. And it's a gigantic one. I mean, they could sell, you know, time and a half what electricity they're selling right now if we electrify the transportation sector, if not more. Um, And it's kind of like, why were they not really leaning into this battle before? But I think there's You know, there's been a lot of soul searching in the electric utility industry over the last few years about how they're going to address climate change, how they can make that work for their business model. And I think finally, the the big wigs at the Edison Electric Institute and the other trade groups have finally said, oh, wait. We can incre- we can expand our rate base, expand you know how much money we're making by deploying different types of infrastructure, and we can do it in a way that we can sell as environmental. That's a that's what the utilities love to call a win win. So they I mean are finally waking up to this reality that oh yeah this is good for the environment and it could be very good for our bottom lines. Um, and I think that that's an important thing to talk about as well is that you know utilities are pushing this not out of any altruism for the environment, but because when they deploy electric vehicle charging stations, they can charge their, they can bill their ratepayers for it. And when electric vehicles increase demand on the grid, so they have to upgrade their poles, their wires, their transformers, they have to put in new substations, they will bill all of their ratepayers for that as well. So this is the main way that utilities make money is through deploying infrastructure and charging their ratepayers for it. They get a little bit of extra um, out of those charges to give to their, uh, to give to their shareholders. So this is a gigantic opportunity for them. Um, And I think it's not just the oil industry pushing back, but some consumer groups, independent charging companies, they've called for caution on these utility plans as well. Because if you give a utility a chance, they'll just deploy everything for you, right? And they'll charge you whatever they want. Um, So I think there's, you know, a lot of, it's not just the oil industry pushing back here. There are some other groups that are calling for a little bit of, you could call it temperance or restraint in how much we let utilities do this. What I'm trying to figure out is, I mean, based on your article, right, and the push and pull between the electric utility industry and the oil industry and the electric vehicle manufacturers and others, you know, I mean, I, I do think that there this isn't really a hindsight is 2020 story. I mean, you know, Robbie Diamond and the Electrification Coalition had legislation on the Hill during the Macondo oil spill, right? I mean, FedEx chairman uh, Fred Smith and others were on the hill basically saying, hey, we should do this, right? And even then, I would say Edison Electric Institute didn't really push. And so now that Tesla has really done this extraordinary thing and created consumer pull, the oil industry is responding by by sort of trying to slow it down. But I, you know, I mean, in some ways, I think the electric utility has, and EEI has actually been worse than being a non-player. They've, they actually missed their chance. So another thing that's coming in is that 
Customers are less loyal to their utilities, I think, than they used to be. And part of this is if you look at California, certainly they're being turned off or their utility is causing wildfires. But the utilities need to figure out how to get their customers back. And the car business, like car purchasing is a very, very personal decision. And by providing a service to a customer, like managing the charging of that vehicle, that turns the utility much more into a customer service organization. And they had kind of gotten away from that. They're trying to get that back. And I think that the customer retention, and as Gavin says, the increased load is really going to try to help their business because in so many other ways, their business is falling down. I want to untangle this a little bit more because I think we've established that the electric utility industry in the last couple of years has really started to push electric vehicle infrastructure, but they have been way behind. And it's very clearly for a financial in- in- interest uh, with an environmental benefit. Now, the the question is, um, A, what are the groups pushing back on on these plans and why? And B, where does the oil industry fit in? And then how will that clash evolve over time? Is it a serious clash? It's just beginning. Is it something that will become a bigger problem in the future? So let's just start at the beginning here. The groups actually like filing uh, comments and pushing back on these plans that utilities are developing. Who are they? And how are they associated with the oil industry? Yeah, so let me just take a, a step back here. So we we tried to track state regulatory filings across the entire nation with relation to electric vehicles. And with help from you know, analysts, activists, we found 25 states where utilities have proposed or are proposing some sort of electric vehicle infrastructure, charging stations or helping people deploy charging stations, something like that. And then we found 10 states right now where there are oil industry groups some organizations affiliated with the industry that are pushing back and saying utilities should not be able to do this. So these are groups that really represent a wide array of sectors of the oil industry, right? Everything from producers to the people who own the pipelines to refineries and even people who own you know, the gas station or the truck stop that you may you may visit on the side of a highway. Um, so we're talking about you know, household names like the American Petroleum Institute. We're talking about groups backed like uh, groups like Americans for Prosperity that are backed by the Koch brothers. We're also talking about um, the American fuel and petrochemical manufacturers. They're a big group of manufacturers of gasoline and other uh, petroleum liquids, petroleum products. And I think their their motivation for being in these fights is pretty clear. If we if we see a big growth in electric vehicles, it's going to mean less gasoline consumption from internal combustion engines. It's going to mean less consumption of motor oil and all of the other components that go into these engines. And it means that, you know, the the business model for a gas station or a truck stop is also going to have to change. Um, so I think now that electric vehicles are becoming competitive, there's something, as Jigger said, that consumers really want these days. They're starting to see, wow, this is a big threat when we look out over the next 10, 20, 30 years. You know, um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, they may be a little aggressive. They may be a little conservative in their estimates. But they say by 2040, we could have the, the U.S. transportation fleet, the passenger transportation fleet could be 40 percent electric and 60 percent of passenger vehicle sales could be electric by that date. From a climate standpoint, we may want to move faster. But just think about if you are someone who makes gasoline that 
that forecast has to scare you a lot. That's a huge chunk of your market that the electric utility industry is just coming and trying to take. They're literally trying to eat your lunch. So I think this is, you know, the oil industry, they see the writing on the wall. And there's, this is just, I think this is just the first salvo in what's going to be um, a long war for the transportation future in this country. So one thing, Gavin, that I find really interesting is that in this situation, the utilities actually have an advantage in their regulated status because with regulators, they're just looking at what is the you know most cost-effective, reliable service for customers. And the oil industry is in a completely different ecosystem. So these arguments about businesses that are losing out that are oil and gas businesses really don't have that much salience when a regulator has to look at these cases. And that's what we're hearing, right, is that the regulators may turn down a case that a utility presents for charging infrastructure, but it's not because of what the oil industry is saying. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point to make here. Um, And it's not that it's not that the oil industry is going into these commission meetings and they're saying, well, you can't let the utility do this because it's going to take away our business. No, they're making a more nuanced argument, perhaps a sneakier argument than that. They're saying, and this is something that they're not alone in making this argument, um, but they're saying that, well, if if the utility is going to deploy all of these electric vehicle charging stations, they're going to charge everyone's electric bill for that, right? You're going As a ratepayer, you're going to get an increase in your bill to build these charging stations. But only a very small number of people, a comparatively small number, actually use electric vehicles today. So you're going to make the entire ratepayer class pay for this electric vehicle infrastructure that really only a few people use? It sounds like a cross-subsidy. It sounds like something, you know, like you're giving money to someone else. And this is something that, you know, other groups will say at commission meetings as well. Consumer groups will uh, may talk about that, um, you know. Other anti-utility groups may talk about that as well. Even some independent charging companies have problems with utilities building out the charging stations because they want to do it rather than the utilities. Um, So I think it's important to note that the oil companies are not alone in making these arguments. Um, But by and large, when regulators scale back utility proposals, they're usually usually responding to concerns from consumer groups, from commission staff, uh, from independent charging companies, and not necessarily from the oil industry. Um, I talked to a couple Republican regulators for this piece, and, you know, they were they were quite uh, they were quite frank with me that when they when they scale back EV charging programs, they're not doing it um, in response to these oil industry groups. One of these regulators called their concerns parochial um, and j- saying that they were only really concerned about um, preserving their market share. So it's a nuanced conversation there. Yeah, the one thing I'd say though is that having worked in the oil industry, that I actually don't think the oil industry is against electric vehicle charging, and so I think we should be very careful about like breaking down the component parts. So the BPs and the shells really don't care all that much. I mean, they care about carbon pricing and, you know, they certainly lobbied heavily to kill a price on carbon in Washington state. But on this flip side, they're buying entire networks of electric vehicle charging stations in Europe. So I don't think that they're against it because they make oil, right? They produce oil and that oil can be shipped around the world. The people who are negatively affected by electric vehicles are generally the people who own the last mile, which are the Koch brothers. So the Koch brothers make all their money by owning 
pipeline infrastructure and then owning very sensitive refinery infrastructure and other processing facilities, right? And so so those processing facilities can't really profitably be used if oil consumption goes down by 4% in the United States. They're not going to really profitably sort of ship a lot of that stuff other places. And so they're far more worried about this than the oil companies writ large. It sounds like that's playing out in the type of groups that are playing an active lobbying role in the states that you've identified, Gavin. I'd also say that like gas station owners don't seem to care that much. I mean, I've talked to a lot of gas station owners just because we look at a lot of funding opportunities at gas stations. Many of them are starting to figure out how to put in fast chargers in their gas stations, particularly the ones who've transitioned their entire gas station fleet to like, you know, uh, these sort of restaurant businesses, whether it's like um, the Quick Serves or the um, Circle K's or the Wawa's, etc. They just think this is another way to keep people at their convenience stores for 20 minutes. One thing I wonder about here, if if I can put a question to the panel here, um, we've you guys are just all utility industry veterans here, and I wonder whether you think the utilities are the best vehicle to really guide us through this electric vehicle transition, right? I mean, the there are a lot of other companies who could do this, right? There are independent charging companies out the wazoo across the United States who want to get into this industry. Um, There are a lot of European utilities that are investing in these charging companies. Should we be allowing the monopoly utility to do this? Should they do part of it? Should they do all of it? What do y'all think? Yeah, so the part that I think that would make sense for them to think about doing, um, and this would kind of push back on the argument that you heard a few years ago from you know, engineers who are saying, oh, yeah, if everybody gets an electric vehicle, the transformers are going to start blowing up off the poles. And having designed those transformers, I don't think that would happen. <laughs> Although I do think one of the roles of the utility would be to help manage, let's like manage the demand of it, because that's what they're going to need to do. If they're operating the system, they need to know what's on it, and they need to manage when things are being charged. That said, that doesn't mean they have to install or own the chargers and that infrastructure. So I think part of it is simply about managing demand on their system and not own owning all of those appliances, because I think um, cities are going to step up to do that. I think private sector is going to do that. I think there may be other people better positioned to do the actual equipment. Yeah. And guide is always a strong word to use with the utilities. I'm not sure they're guiding anywhere. I mean, look, I had a long, um, I was at Verge uh, this week and, um, and uh, Holmes Hummel was on my panel and Holmes is doing just really remarkable work. And, and part of what she's recognizing is that the utility company is where you can go to deploy infrastructure without worrying about credit scores. So the private sector, you know, certainly needs to make sure that they check FICO scores and check to see whether they're going to get paid back on a bilateral contract. For utilities, they can actually deploy infrastructure, do energy efficiency, weatherization, lots of things. And, you know, rate base these things, right? So if you're a politician and you're saying, hey, how do we serve the entire U.S. population and not just, you know, folks who can buy a Tesla or how do we, you know, figure out how to deal with the, you know, inadequacies of infrastructure in frontline communities? Like, how do we, you know, make these transitions? The utility balance sheet is where you do it. And you say, great, you do this. We're going to let you rate base it and you make a rate of return on that. But, you know, because we don't see how the private sector would do that. Uh, the the other thing I just wondered talking to talking to you is why do you guys think the utility sector has been so slow on this? Is it just because they're person you know they're 
kind of temperamentally conservative and they didn't want to move. I mean, you know, we've touched on the fact that they, you know, as Jiggers, Jigger, you said they missed their chance. Uh, they're certainly trying to catch up now. But, you know, why weren't they more hip to this 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Well, it's not for a lack of education. I mean, I mean, you know, like, I don't know what you guys think of Robbie Diamond and the Electrification Coalition, but Lord Almighty, did he make beautiful reports. I mean, he spent like $2 million on each one of those reports. They were beautiful. The graphs were amazing. He'd always have like four-star generals rolling them out, like congressional hearings. It's not like they weren't slapped in the face with the opportunity. They even had regulators that came to them and said, like, you know, you're not seeing enough load growth. Like, I remember Connecticut and a few other states said, like, we need you to, you know, find more load growth. And so it's, it's not like they weren't, told explicitly by many people with lots of beautiful graphs why they should do this. I just think that they are very slow moving, you know, folks. And and I remember um, Pew actually had a whole bunch of uh, events. This was right around 2008, 2009. And even then, I remember the utility CEOs, Entergy CEO in particular, was on stage and was saying, We'll do whatever you ask us to. Just don't ask us for our opinion. Just tell us what to do and pay us. Well, and they're risk averse. I mean, they're very conservative culture, as uh, Gavin alluded to. Their their drivers have been safety and reliability and making sure everybody has electricity when they need it at the cost that they need it. And so they just, I think they thought in a lot of ways this wasn't their job. You know, if, if they're being told by their legislators and regulators that they have to do it, then they will. But they're not the ones that are going to be stepping up. Um, or they didn't used to be. Now, certainly there are a lot of utilities who are changing that paradigm, but it's taken them a while because of that culture. Yeah, and, and, and they weren't hip to it 10, 15 years ago because the models weren't there, consumer demand wasn't there, the regulatory pressure wasn't there, uh, there was very minimal activist and consumer pressure, and all of that has come to a head. And now that you know the, the technology is ahead of consumer adoption, and now that consumer adoption is picking up, there's more regulatory pressure and the utilities will just go along with uh, <laughs> what they're asked to do, as Jigger said. So uh, I think it makes sense to me that it's taken them this long. Yeah, I, I wonder, there's one of the central kind of premises or, you know, the a foundation of this reporting here is a premise or an expectation that in the next decade, electric vehicles are going to be extremely competitive for most or every section of the passenger vehicle market. Um, and the reason that people say this is because they well, they say, well, look, China wants to phase out internal combustion engine vehicles. The European Union is going to do the same. So all these automakers are global. They're going to have to offer these products in those nations. So they'll be able to offer them here. Um, I wonder, can you all handicap that assumption for me? Can you critique that? Do you think like, yeah, is this baked into the cake? We're going to have cost competitive EVs just around the corner. Um, or is there a little bit more risk in that outlook than than maybe I realize? Well, it's not just cost competitive EVs. Remember, EVs are, are already cost effective, right? So when people get an EV and they've got three cars, then they always actually put more miles on the EV because they intrinsically know that it's a cheaper cost per mile. Um, so that's, I think we've already cross that chasm. I think the question really now is around figuring out, you know, how to get more people to recognize how great EVs are. And frankly, with in California, you know, with the public safety shutoffs, there's a lot of folks looking at the Nissan Leaf again, right? Because Nissan is actually fully approved vehicle to grid. And they're like, you know, why would I buy a Tesla Powerwall when I can actually just power my house with my Nissan Leaf? 
right? And so you're starting to see a lot of these integration models. And so now the vehicle is not just for mobility. It's actually there when the utility burns down your house. I Can Nissan do that now? They could power your house with their vehicle they now? They have already approved it. So now entrepreneurs have the ability to suggest hardware to that that can do it. But Nissan has already said it won't void their warranty. Fascinating. That The future is now, right? So this is why we bring reporters on, because they ask such good questions. Gavin, I see you've uh, very easily slid into the role of, of co-host here. I'm just going to step back and let you ask the questions. <laughs> well, thanks, Stephen. I certainly don't mean to usurp your role here, but, you know, I, I'm just curious what experts like y'all think about my reporting. I, you know, spend most of the time trying to figure out what people like you guys think about these issues. So getting you to kind of handicap and critique the story is, is part of the reason I wanted to be here. So thank you, guys. Well, we're grateful you're out there doing this good reporting. Yeah, for sure. It's a great story. And it got me thinking. So the last question that I have for all of you that really got my gears cranking when I read this piece was, are we going to come to a point where we actively see a clash between, say, the American Petroleum Institute and the and and the Edison Electric Institute and the Chamber of Commerce stuck somewhere in between? Um, you know, now that utilities are getting serious about not just electric vehicles, but heat pumps, they're slow to the game, but they're now realizing that massive electrification, heat pumps that will knock off natural gas connections and electric vehicles that will uh, potentially slash uh, oil demand for cars and trucks. Is that going to create a scenario long term where you have these two groups that have you know, operated with largely similar lobbying goals and they've just kind of operated apart from each other? Will that present some kind of political clash? What do y'all think about that? Well, I mean, I'd love Catherine's take, obviously, but I, <laughs> I, uh, I think there's actually an opportunity here, right? I mean, ultimately, what the oil industry has been asking for since 2008 is a carbon price. And the reason they want a carbon price is because they want to be limited from liability from lawsuits and all these other things. They just want this whole thing to go away. They're fine with a carbon price. They're like, as long as it's transparent, you know, to the people at the gas pump that they're paying this carbon price. We just want to be left alone to do our job. And I think the electric utility company could actually bring the rest of the senators along. And you could imagine a grand bargain between the oil industry and the electric utilities. But I'm not sure that either one of them is smart enough to do it. Yeah. It sounds like you're playing three-dimensional chess, uh, Jigger, and that's (laughs) not what they're playing. Um, They're playing whack-a-mole, I think. So, uh, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens. I mean, these are also organizations that are very large and um, not, you know, have really been supporting an incumbent industry. So first of all, the utilities have to change and then they have to get EEI to change, right? Um, And and really push for beneficial electrification policy. And so uh, it remains to be seen whether or not they'll do that. If they're they're smart, they will, because then I think they'll have, uh, you know, climate mitigation policy on their side. Gavin, you got the final word. Did this come up at all in your reporting? Yeah, I think... Not so much on the beneficial electrification side quite yet. I think that's still very confined to a few select states. It's certainly a big conversation in California. It's a big conversation in the Northeast. I don't think that discussion has gone national yet. But I think the larger point of competition between electric utilities and the oil sector for the energy future, I think that is we are just beginning. These are the opening salvos of what's going to be perhaps even a century, at least a decade's 
a few decades long war, but maybe even the war of this century for energy. Um, because I think we see it already, right? We track 10 states where already oil industry groups are facing off against utilities. It's also happening in Congress. Utilities are pushing hard right now to get electric vehicle tax credits extended. You better believe that API, that the fuel and petrochemical com uh, manufacturers, they don't want that to happen. And they are working behind the scenes on that. So it's not like they're out in you know, they're not out in the newspapers every day doing press conferences and trying to get a lot of attention to these issues because both of these industries love to work behind the scenes. But I think what's really interesting here is the oil industry is very used to having a stranglehold on many proceedings in Washington, and they are used to getting their way when they go and they press state legislators and people like that. But they're coming up against perhaps the only other industry in the country, in at least in the energy realm, that is more powerful than them, especially on the state level. I mean, these utility commission, these utility companies, by and large, have they have a huge amount of influence over their utility regulators in the states and also over the state legislators. You know, every lawmaker on the state or federal level has a local utility, and that you better believe that they got a campaign contribution from them and from their and from the utilities leaders there. So they, when the utility sector decides to put their their shoulder into something, they can really turn heads at the state level and in Washington. So you know, I. I think this is going to be a struggle, but I think the, the fossil fuel industry may have met their match when it comes to the lobbying might of utilities. Um, and that's something that we're going to be watching for years to come. For sure. Well, we'll watch your reporting. Gavin Bade is a reporter at Politico. He's a former senior editor at Utility Dive. Uh, you're also guest hosting the Morning Energy podcast over at Politico as well, right? Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. We have a new our new uh, a new podcast of our own over at Politico. It's just uh, five minutes or less at the top of your morning energy newsletter every day. It's great to listen to on the subway or something. Um, and we try to keep it you know short and sweet, mostly just headlines, a little bit of analysis. So not I wouldn't call it an energy gang competitor just yet. So no worries on that. Yeah, we're at the other end of the spectrum. We've been talking for about an hour now. So, and then we'll go for another half an hour. So, you got the short news bites over on your end and we we go we go long. Anyway, you can check that out and read Gavin's uh, reporting over at Politico. Thanks a lot for joining the show. Very quick pause to the show to talk about our sponsor SunGrow. SunGrow has 87 gigawatts of inverters deployed across the globe and it's growing rapidly in the US. It is working with some of the largest companies on the cutting edge of renewable procurement. That includes Apple. And Apple is realizing its vision of 100% renewable energy with a 251 megawatt facility in Boulder, Nevada. It's being developed by Swinterton Renewables, and it's being built with SunGrow inverters, trackers from NextTracker, and cutting edge bifacial modules. We talked about those bifacial modules last week. Uh, five megawatts of the project is going to be available for NV Energy customers to subscribe, so everybody benefits. SunGrow isn't just innovating when it comes to bifacial or working with big tech companies. It's also heavily invested in storage, and it's got inverters integrated on energy storage uh, projects worth more than 200 megawatt hours. So find out more about the really cool projects and technologies that SunGrow is working on at sungrowpower.com. The stakes get exponentially higher in this next story. We are talking about the barrage of lawsuits targeting oil companies for their role in climate change. More than a dozen states and cities have gone to court to argue that oil majors like Exxon and Chevron should be held directly responsible for climate change. Uh, or, as in a trial going on right now in New York City, they should be penalized for allegedly lying to investors about how they modeled climate risk. Essentially, as New York's Attorney General argues... 
It's securities fraud. So that's playing out right now in court. Uh, We've got a bunch of lawsuits emerging from states and cities. We've got this improving attribution science that's better allowing us to target who's responsible for what when it comes to emissions. And we have this general public anger around corporations that are hiding public health impacts, like what we're seeing right now in the courts with drug companies that fueled the opioid crisis. So it feels like an important moment. On top of that, we had a Supreme Court ruling this week that could boost some of these local cases. Let's start with the Exxon trial going on in New York right now. Catherine, what is the attorney general arguing that Exxon did? Yeah, well, first, let me step back for one second, because as I was reading through all these stories, I realized I'm not an attorney, and I needed to reach out to people who could really explain this to me. So I talked to a friend, Howard Crystal, who's an environmental attorney, and he's at the Center for Biological Diversity. And I talked to the Union of Concerned Scientists about what are these different cases. So there are two chunks of cases that have been conflated in articles. Often they've been talked about at the same time, but they're very, very different. So one is the over dozen communities and the Pacific Coast Fishermen Group who are suing from a local and state law perspective on nuisance harm. So what has happened locally to our lives and our businesses based on what all of these companies have done? So that is one set of court proceedings that are going on. And those are the ones that are governed by local and state law. And and those are the ones that also very much align with what happened in the tobacco and opioid stories where, you know, a lot of these companies will will be found responsible. If they're not found responsible, then um, they can settle and they end up paying a lot of money. Those are the local and state cases. The other case that the New York AG has brought is an Exxon case specific. And that is under what's called the Martin Act, where the New York Attorney General has broad purview. And this is investor fraud. This is totally different. This is not about, has Exxon done anything on climate? This is about, has Exxon lied to their investors? And the issue is what is called a proxy cost, which is how much do you account for the cost of carbon based on what you think policy and regulatory issues are coming up or are happening now. And what they've done is they've given their investors a very different number than they've given themselves. And an example of how this would sort of spin out is the Alberta tar sands, for example. What they did was they, if you looked at what you would tell investors, which is $80 a ton, that's how much it's going to cost. And if you look because of regulation and you look at that project, you'd say, oh, that project is too expensive to build. It would not make sense for our investors. But internally, they're using the number $5 a ton, which makes the project look super cost effective and makes them go forward with it. So what that does is it shows that there is a real distinct difference in what they're reporting to their investors to make a decision versus what they're doing internally to go forward with projects. Are you sure you're not a lawyer? That was a very good accounting of of the differences in the cases. <laughs> she stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> oh my God. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> no, that was really impressive. And I, 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 there is a lot of confusion around this latest New York case because the case has evolved over the last couple of years. It started off in 2015 where they were actually trying to argue. You know, they went through this discovery process. They have you know m- like a million pages of documents, and they were trying to argue that Exxon knew that 
its product created climate change and then they wanted to hold them accountable for climate change. So it's more related to these public nuisance laws. I, I don't know if it was actually a public nuisance suit, the original New York City suit, but that got thrown out. And now the attorney general is arguing this much more specific case around carbon accounting and whether it misled investors. And it's still pretty unclear about whether this legal argument will work. Uh, Jigger, you expressed some skepticism about whether you think holding these companies accountable in the courts will actually work. What do you think about how these cases have evolved? And do you think these localities are onto something? So uh, for me, the question really becomes, did these corporations willingly and like sort of maliciously, you know, lie to people, right? I think when you think about the tobacco industry, their products really were killing people, right? Their products really did shorten the lives of people who use those products and they knew it and they hid that information and they lied to people who may have suspected that that was occurring, but, you know, but sort of, you know, was being told by the tobacco companies that it wasn't occurring. In this case, we all knew exactly what was happening, right? And so I just think that the fact that ExxonMobil was was funding a disinformation campaign on the newspapers, particularly the New York Times, but others, like seems to me quite obvious, right? Like if 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 something like climate change is an existential threat to your business, and at the same time, all of the governments around the world and the people actually want you to lie to them because they did, right? At the end of the day, it wasn't like people who figured out climate change in the 90s immediately got rid of their cars and went to electric vehicles. They didn't. I mean, that's what California thought they were going to do that they were going to do and they didn't. So, in general, we were all perfectly willing to get into an Uber or Lyft that was gasoline powered, right? We were all perfectly willing to make sure that our roads and bridges were built using gasoline. But we weren't actually willing to sort of like figure out how to change our like oh, lifestyles, et cetera. And the governments were in crap. on it. It's that puts it into the individual. That's what I mean. I think that like that, that implies that it's up to the individual that, that. No, no, no. I'm, I'm moving. I promise you I'm transitioning to the government now. Right. So, so with the government, there's been a lot of peak oil work that's been done. Right. Matt Simmons, the late Matt Simmons wrote the Twilight in the Desert book around Saudi Arabia and their depletion rates. And, and, so we did hit peak oil in 2005, 2006 for conventional oil. And oil prices went up to $147 a barrel as a result in 2008. The only reason that oil prices have moderated at all is because we allowed for the evisceration of the Clean Water Act and all the fracking, right? And so ultimately, if we didn't allow for any of that because the carbon emission accounting wouldn't allow for tar sands to get exploited or fracking to get exploited in these other unconventional sources we'd all be paying 200 bucks a barrel for oil. And so I just think that people are complicit in this, right? Governments didn't really believe in the solutions around alternatives to oil. And so they were willing to look the other way because they were saying, we kind of need 100 million barrels of oil to keep the economy going. I just would not, I would not underplay the, the fact that these companies knew and Exxon knew forever 
the science and sowed so much doubt in a real systemic way and made it safe for governments, for sure, Jigger, but also made it seem like this was just not an issue for the general public. And I don't think it's up to the general public to try to suss that out if they're being hit by this every day. It's the same thing that's happening on Facebook right now, where people are allowed to put ads that blatantly lie about things. I mean, People, it's really hard for people to try to suss out what's true and what's false. And they had a very systemic campaign to make sure that there was doubt. Absolutely. So there, there are 200%, but wouldn't you have done the same thing? <laughs> well, oh, who cares about whether we do the same thing? No, like- no, no, come on. Like if you're Archer Daniels Midland, right, and you're producing a product that systematically makes young people fat, right, you're going to go out and say, oh, high fructose corn syrup. We definitely, definitely want to figure out a way to like get rid of high fructose corn syrup. No, you're going to say it's chemically equivalent to sugar. There's nothing wrong with it. We should absolutely keep using it in everything from popsicles to milk. And I mean, at some point, like, how am I going to hold them accountable for saying, we would like for you to cut your profits in half. The government is there to protect the public interest. That's why we have government and that's why we have regulation. So it is on the government to make sure that they are the watchdogs and follow up on this so that people will are be given the truth. And so having this lawsuit, I think, is really valuable. I'm like scratching my head over here, Jigger. I mean, obviously, if someone has a financial interest in a product that makes them billions or trillions of dollars, they're going to obfuscate, they're going to lie, they're going to spin, they're going to do whatever they can to get you to buy more of that product. And ultimately, the question is, did they lie? Did they know that their product yes. was causing harm? Right. Hold on. Hold on. But you bring up two important points in your previous um, your previous points. One is um, whether this belongs squarely in the government realm. Was this a choice of government and policymaking that created the problem? Not necessarily the oil companies, but they're just following regulation and policy. And it was really the policymakers who are at fault. And that's essentially what they're arguing. They're saying like, hold on, these ca- the oil industry is saying these cases don't belong in local courts. Um, they belong in the policymaking realm. And so they're asking for many of these suits to be thrown out because they either A, belong in federal courts, or they B, don't belong in the courts and they belong in Congress or wherever policymaking happens. So that's their argument. But riffing off of what Catherine said, I mean, very clearly, there was a well, very well documented by now, clear effort over many, many decades to lie about the science or hide the science. And it is very reasonable to ask whether companies should be held accountable for that. I don't know the legal answer to that right now based on the arguments, right? I'm not making a judgment on whether the courts should go either way, but it is very clearly an important question to be asking. And that's why these cases have merit. Yeah. So I mean, just to make my point of view clear, I do not believe in individual responsibility. So... I've never believed in individual responsibility, right? I think the government's, you know, at fault here. My point to you is that the government was in cahoots with the oil industry on this, right? To suggest that like James Hansen didn't make his speech or the EPA didn't actually know all the health effects of 
burning oil and you know gasoline, right? Or that like we Noah hadn't studied climate change, or that Rio plus you know Rio original didn't happen, or Kyoto Protocol didn't happen. Like it's not like we didn't have an airing of all this stuff, right? But the government said, you know what? We're fine just having hearings and having airings and all this other stuff because we don't really want to do the tough stuff. We don't actually want to use DARPA to get to help the military move away from oil. We don't want to do all of the difficult things the government has to do. And this is a reoccurring theme that we've talked about on the podcast, where America has lost the ability to deploy big things at scale. And instead, they said, well, let's just hope innovation and tax credits work. Let's hope that, you know, these loan guarantee programs with electric vehicles work. Let's try to pass cap and trade. But Oh, it's too hard, right? I mean, I'm just saying this is different than the tobacco industry. This is different than some of these other areas. The government absolutely knew what was happening and didn't want oil production to go down. But I think it's even worse than that, Jigger. I think it's because Koch brothers had all of those groups that were funding all of our elected officials from local to state to Congress. And those are the ones that would decide what the policies are. So if you don't have policy because your policymakers have been bought off by that industry, that's a real problem. Yeah, and, and it's not even necessarily just that these these lobbyists have influenced or bought off politicians, and that is clearly well documented. It's that the, the, at the foundational level, when the science was becoming clear internally, when these companies hired internal scientists to project what was going to happen if people, if they produced more of their product, they ended up squelching that science. And that, to me, is a very complicated and interesting legal question. So the big question for me is, uh, some of these suits have gotten tossed out. Uh, the Supreme Court just ruled this week that the uh, many of these local cases could go ahead in local courts, which presumably gives these cities uh, a, a home court advantage. And the oil industry is saying like, hey, this is, this is too costly. These belong in federal courts. Um, I guess the question is, there are these these cases definitely differ but what happens if the oil industry loses one right like what what are the consequences for these companies if they start to lose these cases or if they lose just one so yeah so here's an issue um which may not even have to do with winning or losing and just remember the supreme court just declined to review the cases it doesn't mean that they would rule favorably right. one way or the other, you know, they, they just yes, declined yes. to review it. So that means that it is going to be handled now for now in state court. But what happens now is that you have discovery. So all these documents have to come out and everything has to be aired and made public. And this is when all this dirty laundry is going to be out there um, from these industries. And that can be just as damaging as to whether they win or lose, because they may end up, rather than wanting all this to become public, they may want to pay out, do some settlements, and losing money in that way could change their behavior. So it, it may not even be necessarily whether they win or lose in a straight case, but what comes out that's going to damage their brand, that's going to further people's already distrust, which they clearly do distrust these companies. Um, and and that may change what happens in the end even more than a decision by a jury. Yeah, I, I don't I don't believe it, though. I mean, I hear what you're saying. But I, I mean, as someone who studied this pretty carefully from the oil industry side, when I was at BP, we had people seconded to the World Bank, we had people seconded to all sorts of places like everyone is all in on oil. 
everyone in the whole world is all in on oil. To suggest for a moment that the national security apparatus, that the, you know, like sort of the economists. I mean, if you went to Larry Summers and Tim Geithner today and said, what do you think about this? They'd say, we don't want these lawsuits, right? If you went to Ernie Moniz today and said, what are we going to do to like, you know, transition us off of oil? He's like, I have no idea, right? I mean, I just think that like the notion that we actually have done our jobs as sort of like the government to say, you know what, the age of oil is over and we should transition to something better. That has not happened. The age of coal is over, 100%. But the vast majority of power brokers in the world, including Wall Street, remember, the U.S. dollar is pegged to, the, to oil. That's the reason why the U.S. dollar has supremacy around the world, right? When oil goes away, what are you going to peg the U.S. dollar to, right? I don't think any of these answers have actually been solved. This is completely different than tobacco. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, there's that other court case um, of the children and they're suing the federal government, not the fossil fuel industry. Right. For generational impact. Yeah. Yes. And so I just I just want to make sure that we're clear about like the centrality of the oil sector in everything that you hold dear, like literally everything from the reserves of Citibank and J.P. Morgan Chase to like the way Saudi Arabia works and the reason the New York Fed right now is lending $100 billion a day to clear the short-term lending market is because Saudi Arabia has pulled out their money out of Wall Street, right? I mean, like, this is so like central. And I don't mean to be a conspiracy theorist. I'm just saying this is not a technology thing. This is a government's got to get their their crap together and figure out whether we're really ready to transition. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that. But like, that seems like a bit of hand waving here, because we're talking about a very specific legal question. Did these companies know that their product was going to cause harm? Did they hide it? Did they mislead the public and push as much of that product as possible? And I think that that's different from the complexities of transitioning away from oil. Now, do many of the activists and people pushing this message that Exxon knew kind of understand or appreciate that complexity? Maybe not. But I still think that we need to focus on the very specific legal question at hand, which is really compelling to me. So I'll I'll make a prediction for you. Like, I think that the oil industry is going to lose these cases. And literally, they won't pay the price because of what I said. That like, They'll lose the case. Everyone will beat them up in the, in the press. And then they won't actually pay the price because no one knows how to transition. Um, well, maybe they'll lose one other case, too, because the Massachusetts Attorney General also just yesterday um, decided to file a climate suit against Exxon, too. Yeah. I mean, the legal momentum is picking up. And I really am not sure how this is going to play out. But on the public perception side, people support holding these companies accountable. The attribution science has got a, gotten a lot better, which makes the journalism a little bit clearer when people write about this stuff. And there's now this shift in the last year or two where people are saying, hey, remember all that stuff that people told you about feeling bad about flying or driving or you know, uh, not turning your lights off? Like That's BS. And in fact, it's a select few companies that knew about how bad their product was that have pushed it on all of us and have done nothing to transition away from it. Like That's what we should be focusing on. And I have no idea how that actually plays out, but it is a very noticeable shift. And I think it will 
fuel some of the legal momentum. With that, whew, that was a marathon. Okay, uh, we've got <laughs> just a few minutes left here before we all have to disband. So let's uh, let's rally those free electrons. Catherine, what do you got? Yeah, so I often talk about all of the climate legislation that's percolating in the House of Representatives. Um, but there are some things that are happening in the Senate, too, that I wanted to bring up. Um, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer it has announced a climate plan, and he just recently, yesterday, put out a big piece on cars. So um, it has buy-in from the United Automakers, Ford, GM, the environmental groups. Um, it would provide discounts for consumer trade-ins of um, internal combustion engine cars. It would provide grants to cities and states for charging infrastructure and manufacturing grants for EVs and batteries. And that's kind of the – this is the first tranche. Um, it would, in theory, take 63 million internal combustion cars off the road by 2030. And Schumer says, I'm going to tee this up because whoever's president, uh, assuming it's a Democrat, would have to have something in place to start implementing. And I think it's really smart for Congress to do this because there are, I assume that Anybody who gets into the president, climate may not be the number one issue now that Jay Inslee is out. So we want things teed up in the House and Senate. The other um, interesting development in the Senate is that Senator Heinrich from New Mexico is talking about introducing an investment tax credit for transmission, which is really interesting. It. And I love this idea. He also wants to try to lean more on, on FERC to approve uh, planning processes. But gosh, you know, if Skelly had something like that, could he have built some transmission? <laughs> That's Michael Skelly from Clean Line Power, who we talked about with on the show with Russell Gold. Go check that conversation out. By the way, we've had a great conversation on the difficulties of transmission, and that tax credit could play a role. Uh, Jigger, free up your electron here for us. What do you got? So I uh, uh, wrote a piece with Suzanne Hunt in uh, Green Tech Media about um, how the airlines basically have already agreed internationally to offset all future carbon emission growth uh, starting next year. And we recommend that they use um, regenerative farming and carbon sequestration in soils from farmers uh, to meet that requirement. So um, so it's um, it's interesting. I mean, given our, our offset conversation and my anti-offset, so I think this one actually has far better um, sort of chain of evidence as to where the uh, savings are coming from. Hmm. Well, I saw some research come through on the wires from Carnegie Mellon University this week, uh, and they showed that fine particulate pollution in the United States increased 5.5% between 2016 and 2018 after Trump took office. Over the last seven years, it decreased by 25%. So it's the first time in a long time that we're seeing an increase in particulate pollution. Now, that's because people are driving more. Uh, we've had more wildfires. That certainly plays a role. But there's also less enforcement of the Clean Air Act under Trump. And all of those things combined have caused, for the first time in a long time, particulate pollution to go up. I mean, you could look at the chart. It's like it's been going down, 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 down for so long. And then all of a sudden in 2016, you start to see this rise. It's It's pretty shocking to see. And then, you know, the public health impact is real. According to these researchers, that particulate matter was associated with 9,700 additional premature deaths. So when we go in the opposite direction, it has real consequences for people's lives. Yeah, that was pretty scary when I saw it. So I t I'm glad you pointed it out. 
as a cherry on top or a piece of coal on top or whatever it is, the Trump administration recently disbanded an independent panel on particulate matter. So, yeah, uh, of course they did. But we clearly didn't need that. (laughs) Time to power down for the week. Before you power up your next podcast, do us a favor. Take that survey linked in the show notes. It's a huge help. Send a link to the snake milker or rock splitter of your in your life who would love this show. My co-hosts are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. The show is produced and edited by me and Daniel Waldorf. We are a co-production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Stephen Lacey.